It's good to be with you again. Thank you for the warm welcome. <laughs> I just, oh, if you have to beg. Listen, we have an outline. Check it out. All right. This morning, we're in Romans chapter 8. We have been in the book of Romans for a number of weeks. We took a couple of Sundays off the last couple of Sundays. And it's, uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful text. One of the great qualities, I think, of Calvary Church, the worship we just had, they're just fabulous, that last song, especially I love that last song. And then also that we are a church that really loves God's Word. Uh, we don't worship the Word, we worship the God of the Word, but His Word reveals His truth and guides us in life. And the passage of today is so critical for how we live our lives in any situation. I remember hearing about a, a woman that went to a, a man that she worked for, went to her boss. Her husband had died. And uh, she said to her boss, both believers, and so she says to her boss, she says, man, my husband died. It's been really tough. And she says, uh, could you pray for me? And he says, how would you like for me to pray for you? What would you like for me to pray about? Pray for um, provisions now that you're a widow? What, what would you like to pray for? She says, would you pray for wisdom? He says, wisdom. Okay, I'll pray for that wisdom. Why would you want wisdom? She says, I want wisdom because I don't want to waste. I don't want to waste this experience of my husband's death. And I think she speaks kind of into an issue that a lot of us feel. That when we go through death, disappointment, pain, loss, lost finances, loss of a job, loss of a friendship loss of classes, didn't get into the school you wanted to go to, whatever it may be, there's kind of a sense like, wow, I, I, this is a painful thing, a disappointing thing. I don't really want to be in this thing, but I want to make sure it's not wasted. And then we go to a wonderful verse that we're going to look at this morning. Many times as believers in Jesus, we go to Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We believe that even in tragedy, God's going to bring something good. And we claim, we hang on to that promise, and man, do we want to live there. That no matter how bad it is, we know there is a good that God wants to create. So we're going to talk about that. I wanted to put aside where it's misused, and I want to put aside when sometimes it is underused and really drill down on what did God have in mind when he gave us this passage I want us to be people who know for confidence sake that God is going to bring good no matter what we go through isn't that what we all want that God's gonna bring something good out of something bad we want to live that kind of a life well let's take a look here are four things that we're going to look at that are on the outline you can see that I give you outlines like that because uh, for me, they're kind of like a road map. I don't know about you, but when I sit out where you're sitting, sometimes I am prone to mental wandering. And so it's good to be able to have a road map because if you ever lose your way, you can look at the map. Oh, here's where we are. Let me catch up. And you kind of get back on the trail. So when you want God's good in your life, the first thing that I noticed that is in Romans 8:28 is that I need to be in a position to claim God's promise of good. I need to be the kind of person that God says is qualified to, re to receive God's good. So again, Romans 8, 28, very familiar. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. 
And as I get to the position of those who want that, let me just drill down in one little phrase. I love this little phrase. It's really important to the, everything else we're going to say. And at the very end of the message today, I want to show you somebody who gets it. So we're going to talk about it, then going to illustrate it at the very end. God causes all things to work together for good. This is such a key phrase of this whole verse. Let me just show you a little bit of behind the scenes when Paul wrote that. When he wrote it, he wrote it in the Greek language. The Greek language often has color to it that we can't see. You can read the Bible, and it's like reading in black and white, but when you know a little bit of the Greek, it's sort of like watching color TV. Work together, or HDTV, work together is a Greek word, sunergeo. Sun meaning with, ergon meaning to work, to work together. And what Paul is saying here is that you want good in your life, absolutely. And here's how God does it. He works together. He uses synergon. And, and we get the English word synergy from it. Synergy of working together, of bringing all the parts together so as to create something that otherwise would not be there by any individual part. So he says, I want to bring together a synergy for God to mix it all together so that there is good. And the Greek word that Paul used for good means that thing which is a benefit in effect to my life. I want a benefit. I don't want to waste this. I want some effect that's going to show that it's been worthwhile to go through the pain, the loss, the disappointment. Whatever it is I'm going through, I want God's good, but I want it to be beneficial. So God, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to work it all together. I'm going to mix it together. It's kind of like uh, uh, making a cake, simple illustration. You bake a cake and maybe you got a couple of eggs. You don't want to eat raw eggs on your own necessarily unless you're well, I guess some people do that, but I think it doesn't sound very appetizing. Then if you have a, say you have a cup of flour, you don't want to eat flour. Then you have a little pinch of salt. You don't really want salt all by itself. You want to eat a, a, a tablespoon of vanilla. It's not very appetizing. And maybe add uh, some other ingredients that uh, all by themselves, each of those ingredients are probably not appetizing or desirable at all. Well, God sometimes allows ingredients like that in our lives. One situation, one circumstance, one person, one problem. And we've got all these individual things that are sort of accumulating in the course of my life. And if I just take one single one of those items, it's like one of those ingredients in the cake that in and of themselves, it's not desirable, it's painful. In fact, it's repugnant to me. But then God takes ingredients of my life, my experiences. As he talks at the very end of the passage here, he says, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor debt nor any other created thing. And he says in verse 35, with tribulation, with distress, with persecution, with famine, with nakedness, with peril or sword. God takes all those individual things he just lists there and he begins to work them together like synergy. He begins to mix them together like a cake batter and then he puts it in the oven and begins to bake it and the final product of a cake is very delightful but all the ingredients by themselves are painful so god takes all these ingredients that he lists here in 35 38 and 39 and it begins to synergize them to work them together so once he has had his hand in the mix once we allow him to be sovereignly controlling those details he says now you will see my good. But if you take them individually, yeah, it's going to be a painful process. So God says, let me bring good by allowing me to mix them together 
so that you'll eventually see the good. I'll show you how he does that at the end of the message. Now, who are those that are in the best position to receive that mixture from God where there's good? There's two qualities. He qualifies it by saying, I will bring good to those who love me. So I ask the question, am I in a loving personal relationship with God? That comes through the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has died upon that cross. He has paid for my sins. I admit I'm a sinner. I know that I need someone to save me. I can't save myself out of my own sins. Coming to a church doesn't save me. Being baptized won't do it. I can do all these good things, but if they're just good things to gain God's favor, I'm not in a loving relationship. I'm, I'm in a loving myself relationship because of how good I am. God says, no, you admit that you're wrong in sin. Claim Christ. Trust in Him. Let Him forgive you. And then... I know you love me because you're doing what I have called you to do, to trust in my son Jesus. So am I in a loving relationship? Is it intimate? Is it personal? Is it daily? So we have things like our life labs that Eric was just talking about. How to grow. How to have a loving relationship where I am growing in my faith with, God, with a God who loves me desperately and wants to have an intimate connection with me. How to connect with God this afternoon. How do I connect with God in a personal loving relationship? Am I there in that sweet spot where God is and I, man, it, it's not always easy. Sometimes I drift. Sometimes I feel a little rebellious. Sometimes I don't even feel like loving Him. But man, I'm constantly recentering myself to where He wants me to be. And God says, I'm so honored by that. Because I know we're all frail. We're going to have those moments. But we keep coming back to the sweet spot of loving Jesus Christ. And says, when I'm there, then I'm in a position for God to mix my life to good. And secondly, I'm pursuing the purpose of God. I want God's will in my life. I don't always understand what God is doing. I don't get His sovereign control. I don't get some of the things we're going to be talking about here in a moment. But I'm, I'm pursuing whatever I know best from God. I don't know day to day. I don't know job to job. I don't know school to school. But in the long run, I know that His purpose for me is to bring glory to His name in a holy life that He's called me to live. That much I do know is true. That much I will pursue. Now again, specifically, jobs, schools, houses, cars to purchase. Those are all little details that I may not fully get. But what I do get, I do. His glory, my holiness, honoring Him. That much I can pursue. So when I'm in that position, I'm right where he wants me to be to take whatever circumstances of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword and allow him to synergize working them together for good. That's a great place to be. So that's the beginning point. And then I need to understand the good that God wants me to see in my life, to see in the world, to see in what he's doing. So he goes on to say in Romans 8, 29, and 30, understand what that good is. Here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the greater good he wants to do. Let me just pick on one word because it's always problematic for people. And I had a lot of people comment about this after first hour. And it is this word, predestination. It's a word that those of us who love freedom are a little bit uh, uneasy with. 
The word predestination is made up of a couple of words, meaning pro, meaning beforehand. Horizo, we get the word horizon from it. Those things that are horizon, those things that are marked out beforehand. An architect might mark out on a piece of paper the structure of a home or a building they're going to construct. And so it's sort of all marked out. Here are the parameters. This is where it's going to be. This is what's going to take place. So God says, this is what I do for you. I mark out your life. There's a lot of, wait a second, where's my free will? How do you have control over me and I don't have freedom to choose myself? God says, you're just worrying about things you don't need to worry about because there are things you don't understand. That's how I feel because I don't understand all this. But God wants to mark that out. Now the problem comes, a couple of questions. So I want to ask and answer these in a very simple, simplistic way that doesn't obviously delve to the depth that some of you will probably require and want or seek and probably understand it better. But there are two questions that come up. Well, do I need to evangelize if God has marked out those, predestined those that are going to be saved? Second question that often comes up, well, did God predestine some people to hell? If He predestined me and marked out my life for heaven, then He must have predestined people to hell. Well, that's logical, but that's not biblical. So God has given us freedom. It's the freedom to choose to believe. It's the freedom to know that Christ saved me. And some people are free to reject Jesus Christ. Now notice these two verses by Jesus himself. In John 3, 15 and 16, that sort of goes to the issue in a very simple way. He, Jesus said, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I highlight in the blue the two key words, whoever. He didn't say whoever is predestined by God will be saved. Whoever is uh, rejecting Jesus is predestined to perish in hell. Jesus simply says, whoever wants to believe in me is welcome to believe in me, and I welcome whoever wants to believe in me. If seven billion people in the world today should believe in Jesus Christ, they are the whoever. So whoever is anybody who is out there and still alive, it is the whoever of anyone. And so God says somehow there is this mystical tension of my predestination but also the willingness to admit that whoever wants to believe in me will be saved. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I don't know who that whoever is, so therefore I need to evangelize to every whoever that is out there. That is my classmates, my neighbors, my co-workers, my bosses, my employees. They are the whoever. I don't know who's going to believe, but I know that I need to go out to whoever is out there because whoever is out there can believe. I don't worry about whether I should evangelize to anybody because God is predestined. I simply know that whoever believes will be saved. So I'm going to go to the whoever's. Secondly, he says, whoever believes in him should not perish. God does not destine anyone to hell. Whoever wants to believe in Him will not go to hell. So whoever means that there is no one predestined to hell because whoever believes will not go to hell. Whoever is the key. And Jesus explicitly explains that. So that although we have the tension of predestination, but also this other side of freedom of whoever, it's a tension we've got to live with and we'll never make sense of it. And you'll hear much more about this next Sunday in Romans chapter 9. So the key is, don't worry about God predestining anybody to hell because He does not. We go to hell because we reject Jesus. And don't be concerned that I should not evangelize. I should. Because I never know whoever is going to believe. And I need to be that voice and witness for Christ. 
But then let me say this. In Scripture, there are always primary applications and secondary applications. The book of Romans was written to a people who lived uh, 2,000 years ago in Rome. We happen to read it and say we want to claim some of that too, but it was written to the Romans. If you read the Old Testament, they're written to Old Testament people about Old Testament stories. There are promises in Jeremiah and Isaiah that we often claim for today. Jeremiah's promise, I have a plan to prosper you. Well, we love that verse. We have it hanging in our hallway in our house. That promise of Jeremiah 29 was given to Israel. But we claim it sort of for ourselves today. So there are those primary recipients and primary points, and then there are secondary points in Scripture. And, And if you miss that, you sometimes mess up the Scripture. So here is the primary good, the primary good. That when Paul says all things work together for good, this is what he had in mind because it's the following verses. In those following verses, again, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's the ultimate good. To conform me to be like Jesus so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. So the primary good is that everybody who he foreknew, he then predestined. If you're predestined, then he called you. If he called you, he justified you. If he justified you, he glorified you. And the ultimate good is that we all become conformed to be like Jesus, and he doesn't lose anybody along the way. If He knows you, He predestines you, He calls you, and then justifies you, He doesn't suddenly kick you out of the family because He decided to not glorify you. I know that no matter who I am and where I go or whatever I do, and sometimes it can be bad that God says, Dave, I have chosen you, I have justified you, and I will then glorify you. Now, why does He say that to these people? Because these people are living in the time of political oppression unlike anything, frankly, probably most of us in this room have ever experienced. When Nero, the, the uh, leader of that country, would take Christians and place them in his backyard party of the Roman citizens and use those Christians as literal lamps of fire by burning them bodies, That's how they would illuminate the nighttime. We take Christians and wrap them up in skins of animals and throw them in the Colosseum so other wild animals could come and literally rip them apart. That's who he's writing to. They've had friends and family here in Rome who have indeed experienced tribulation, distress, persecution, and death. And when you go through those things, you begin to wonder, so where is God? What happened? Why is this going on? Does he still love me? Am I still part of the family? Am I still destined to heaven? Has he abandoned us? Have I done something wrong? Did he kick me out of the family? Have I lost it all? Oh yeah, that terrible one day where I really cursed him out and I was so frustrated with him. Was that what he did? He sort of booted me out of the family because I couldn't be perfect every day? Is that the kind of God we worship? Paul says, no. The greatest good that I can ever offer you, he says, God works all things together for good, and the good is, if you are foreknown and predestined, called and justified, you're glorified. You may go up into heaven in the Colosseum, or you may die a slow and peaceful death on your bed, but you're all being glorified. 
No one is lost along the way. There is no slippage of people losing their salvation on the journey to heaven. If indeed they're called justified, they will be glorified. That's the best good. That's eternal living. It's having this eternal perspective. I got an email this past week, and because she knew we were dealing with Romans 8.28, she read the email that I sent out this last week, and one of our missionaries, Penny Aronson, emailed me two days ago, asked if I could share her email that she wrote to me. And she gets us. Here's, a, here's someone who gets the good that God had in mind. Patty writes, I was nine months pregnant, two days from my due date, when all movement from within ceased. We rushed to the hospital, and no heartbeat could be found. I wished mine would stop as well. Days were like weeks. Grief is such a hard work, and I clung to God's word. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I prayed that God would use Benjamin's life for good, but I couldn't imagine how in the darkness in my grief. Again, you take just the one ingredient, it's hard to see it. But God began to work together. Years have passed, and the son would be graduating from high school this year. I've gone back to the verse and wondered what good came from that time in my life. Then one day I read the next verse. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God's work came in my life. I learned to trust God's sovereignty in life's most difficult times. I'm learning that my holiness is his work, not mine. I'm learning to walk humbly before my God. I'm walking with others through life's dark places with wisdom gained from being there myself. In a tough spot, ask God to make it good in His way, in His time, in you. God takes those ingredients and over years He mixes them. So the ultimate good that God gives to us in Romans 8, 29 and 30, is fully understood and embraced. But you know, there's not just a primary good. There's also this other good that comes, and it's sort of a secondary good, where we in our daily living want to know that God is still making things in a good way. And I don't have time to go into it, but I offer to you on the outline three people that display to me how God brings good in daily living. One is Ruth. Ruth is a woman from a countryside of Moab. Her father-in-law dies, her husband dies, and she, all she has is her mother-in-law who then renames herself as a bitter old woman that God has no favor on. But they travel back into this country of Israel and that God begins to provide. And the beauty of the story of Ruth being in such a desperate and painful journey is that she remained faithful until the good showed up. There's also King Manasseh. You can read about the scripture is there. But let me take you to Joseph. Joseph, the Old Testament Joseph, where he had this uh, righteous and even wealthy family. 
were his 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And those brothers kicked him out of the family and sold him into slavery and betrayed him because dad loved Joseph better than the sons because dad gave Joseph a really neat coat from Urban Outfitters. And they're just really resentful over that. So where's my fancy, beautiful coat? So Joseph is uh, looking like the favored son. And brothers do what brothers do. They gang up. They beat him up. They sell him off into slavery. And he goes off into Egypt eventually. He ends up in a lot of terrible situations. He's tempted by uh, Pharaoh's wife who wants to have uh, a sexual relationship with him. He turns her down. He is holy and pure. And it's uh, being thanked by God for being pure and holy. In that time of temptation, he gets thrown into jail. Falsely accused and judged. But in the course of time, God then brings dreams and brings him out of the prison. He becomes the number two man in the most powerful nation of the world. He is like the vice president of Egypt. And then the brothers come back because they need food. There's famine. And the brothers finally recognize that's Joseph, the man we sold into slavery, the man we betrayed. Our brother is going to wreak havoc on us. He could kill us. He could execute us. So Joseph's brothers come and they reacquaint themselves and it's an emotional, you know, uh, reconnection. And as they gather together, here's how Joseph handled that tragedy of his life and the good that God brought. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive so they could stock up with food and people of Israel would not die. So therefore, do not be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, Joseph had a lifetime of misery and unjust, unfair conditions, painful, jolting, awful. But in the course of that, he remained faithful, loving God and pursuing the purpose God had for him. He never lost his way on that. So that when we come back to people like Joseph and Ruth, if you're waiting for God to bring good, here are three models. In Ruth, we are called just remain faithful till the good comes. In Joseph, remain gracious. No revenge. No anger, no spite, no bitterness. God meant it for good. The good that God brought. Joseph finally sees it years later in his life, in the latter half of his life. He finally sees the good as God mixed it together. Now I get it. I'm in God's place. It makes sense to me. I didn't get it back when you threw me in the pit, when I ended up in jail because I didn't have an affair with the Pharaoh's wife. But now I'm getting it. I'm in God's place. God synergizes. He works those things together in King Manasseh. Be prayerful. Be faithful. Be gracious. Be prayerful until God reveals His good. And He will do that. And then we see this. Rely on Christ's power to get there. And this is so basic, but in verses 31 through 34 it says, What then shall we say through these things? If God is for us, who is against us? I love Paul. He asks these questions and sort of answers these questions. Who, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
And who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I love that image of Christ sitting there at the right hand of God. And every time we go through these times, these, these ingredients that are painful or bitter to taste or experience, that Jesus is right there to the Father. And we go through Jesus in our prayer. And we go right to the Father. And Jesus died for me. He rose for me. He is in heaven for me. He has ascended. And He is there at the right hand of God. And that anything I ask Him, Jesus is right there saying, Hey, Dad, you hear what Dave just asked? I like that. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, there's another prayer. Father, let's address that. Let's begin to interact with Him as He calls to us. Jesus is there as my intercessor to protect, to guide, to care for. I rely upon Christ to be that person for me. That's why I sometimes, and half-heartedly and half-jokingly, I should say, call Jesus our senior pastor. Because no one is above Him. He is the senior shepherd. He is the good shepherd. There's no one I want to rely upon more than Him. So He is there to intercede. If God will not spare His own Son for my good, then how much more will He do for me? And then finally, here's the key. Trust in God's care because, man, we're going to experience problems and pain in finding God's good. God guarantees there's going to be pain. That's why He goes on to say, now in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Here's the reality check. As you go towards God's good, nothing will separate Jesus' love for you, but you will experience, in one way or another, some tribulation or distress. Tribulation means those things that the word actually means pressure, stress. The word distress, uh, is a, in a literal way, means to go into a very narrow passageway where I feel stuck. So if you feel pressure and stress or you feel stuck, God says that's part of the life where I'm going to take those ingredients and bring good. Persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril or sword. Then he also, in verses 37 and 39, we will overwhelmingly conquer. We will not just mildly conquer. We'll overwhelmingly conquer these things. But they're going to come. He loves us, but they're going to come. For I'm convinced neither death, tragic loss of life, nor life, things that we experience today, nor angels, good angels that come along and support us, or principalities, demons, Satan, his attacks against us, nor things present. I worry about today, nor things to come. I'm worrying about tomorrow, next week. Where am I going to get the job? How am I going to get into that school? What about my grades? What about the promotion? Things in the future, I worry about those. There's stress factors in my life. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. None of those things will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the capacity to take a step back and say, God, you are working things together. And these are some of those things. But I know I will be glorified someday. But also today, I know that you will still bring good. As I trust you, to mix it, synergy, for the good that you want to do. Let me illustrate it. One of our missionary families uh, was with us in our life group last Sunday night. Lanny and Carla Aronson served for 42 years in Africa. Aronson is one of the big names here at Calvary Church of missions, and there's a bunch of them doing it, brothers. And uh, what I love about Lanny, and here's a, 
Here's the thing that really strikes me. 42 years, Lanny is now reaching retirement. But here's what I have said to our life group. It's easy to start something. It's easy to begin anything. It may last a day. It may last a week. The key with everything is finishing well. Is Lanny and Carla finishing well after 42 years of ministry? Through thick and thin, through persecution, through death, through life, they finished well. As they told their story to our life group last Sunday night, we were so blessed. I said, tell us the highlight, the low light of 42 years of work. And they did. And it was so good. I asked Tammy, would you record their story? Listen to how God mixed together all the things Paul just talked about for a greater good. So let's take a look and listen. In 1985, as my wife and I were traveling between uh, mission points, um, we were ambushed, and there were shots fired at our car, one of which struck the tire on my side, and a second shot that came in shortly thereafter struck my wife in the middle of the back. Um, I was able to drive the car for a few more miles to get out of the situation, stopped, gave her some basic first aid to stop the external bleeding, and repaired the tire, and then was able to drive to a, um, a nearby uh, base where I knew that there was another uh, Western organization working who had radio contact and who could also call in an airplane. They had an airstrip. And we were able to get her on a plane with a doctor with a medical drip and, and things, but uh, she died before we could reach a hospital. Um, the plane landed in Kenya um, with my wife and myself on board, and we're met there by my family, my two, two of my brothers, my, my parents, and um, other mission leaders had come to hopefully take us to the hospital for her surgery, but that was not going to happen as she'd passed away. Um, we went out to my parents' home at Kajabi that night. We brought my daughters down, and I was able to tell them that their mother was gone. Um, it was a very difficult time, as you can imagine, very um, hard, a lot of grief, a lot of um, weeping. But I can honestly say that at no point in that time did I feel depressed we believe in, in God as being the king and the ruler and in his sovereignty, and it wasn't for us to question why. There were quest times for questioning myself, why did I drive on the road that day? Why did I respond in that way? Could I have done things better that might have saved your life? But never was there an issue of God's involvement and his doing it. I don't pretend to understand what areas God causes and what area God allows and all of that. It's not for me to even challenge. It's for me to simply know that we serve a good God who does all things well. And um, and to, to move forward. It's just um, to continue believing in Him and trusting in Him. Yes, there was a great deal of grief, but there was also a, um, a joy of knowing that, that Janice was now fully herself because we're we created to be eternal people and our eternity doesn't end in this world in fact it doesn't even hardly start until we get over the next bridge which is in, in heaven with Christ and although she'd been a beautiful person and a wonderful person in this world 
It was like moving from being a caterpillar to being a butterfly, and that was part of the imagery that was in my mind. That before, she, in all of her beauty and all of it that she brought into my life, she was now really, really who she was meant to be. She was in the presence of the Lord, and that was encouraging. Um, even as my daughters and I grieved um, her loss. As we prayed about our future and the mission came to me and asked me to take a new role called Director of Outreach, which was to identify where there were unreached people in Africa, where there were countries that were without a clear gospel witness, and to establish new projects, new programs, new outreaches that would be um, proclaiming the gospel to peoples and um, places which needed to hear the gospel. So that was, um, that was one of our big calling and that's where Carla comes into the picture. When I was 17, my sister was 18, and although we were in a Christian home, that was a turning point because she was killed in a small plane crash. And obviously nothing like that had ever happened in our family. Something like that turns your world upside down. And I remember some, some months after that happened, I thought, well, you know, if God could take Rita just like that, then he could take me just like that. And therefore, the only things that really count are the things that count for eternity. Things of this life, really, it's not as big of a deal as my peers, you know, as we thought of college and marriage and kids and all that. It, those just lessened in importance. And I thought, really, what counts is the things that are going to last. Um, for eternity. So I wanted to go somewhere where the work wasn't being done. There was there was need. There was a, a sense of I could make a difference if if I'm willing. I ended up in Chad in the early 90s. And I had to work through that. Okay, if I go to Chad, I'm going to be single. This is it. I'm not going to find a husband in Chad of all places. So um, I worked through that, you know, the ups and downs of that every single person has to work through. Um, but thinking, okay, this is my life. I'm going to be in Chad for 30 or 40 years, however long the Lord calls me. Um, had to learn Chadian Arabic and was working on some other languages, doing village health care and all that. So he made trips to Chad, and we got, we, we got to know each other. We got along well. We washed dishes together and cooked and talked and prayed. And, and together as a team, we were devising strategy and vision. And um, I, I remember as a teenager, somebody said, um, really, in America, we date backwards. Um, really, you should connect spiritually and then emotionally and then physically. And in, in America, we often do that the backwards. And I think that's what happened with Lanny and me because we were, um, we were together on the same page as far as our big goals and our passion for unreached peoples to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and then we also just had fun together. We, even fun we knew each dishes, other, really. even dishes, and we just had a good time. And, um, but then he went back to Kenya and I was in Chad. And uh, Christy, my eldest daughter, was now into her third year of university. Katie was a senior going to graduate. Then she'd be graduating in 95. Um, so I knew I had about a year more with her. She was starting to tell me, Dad, I'm leaving. You, you better find somebody to take care of you because no one's going to help you dress if I'm not around to tell you how to get, your, get the right clothes on. At this point, I was starting to evaluate, and I thought, well, next time I go to Chad, I want to know if Carla would even be interested in a relationship. Now, I knew we had a friendship, and I had this huge regard and respect for her. Um, but I also knew that she had a call from God to be in Chad, and I respected her call, and I didn't feel called to Chad. I, when I went over to Chad, it was so hot, I was counting the days until I could leave. <laughs> Um, 
So that was all part of my thinking, and I thought the next time I go to Chad, we'll, I'd like to find out if she'd be interested in, in something more. Well, as Carla came out carrying this tray of food, a toad hopped into her path, and um, she just reached out her foot and just kind of pushed it aside and went about her business. And I said to myself, there's someone I could live the rest of my life with. So I'm going to definitely ask the question I said tonight. I'm going to ask the question if she'd want to pursue a relationship. That was kind of my plan. So we carried on with the interview that night. I mean, it was just a way to get started in talking. And not only did he ask if I wanted to pursue a relationship, he actually proposed. and That hadn't been planned. <laughs> So we really feel like God definitely intervened and made that happen. And um, yeah, it kind of surprised us both. But the, the fact that he asked gave us a security and an ability to trust and say, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to commit to each other. And then at that point, God just gave the love. We, you know, we talk about falling in love, all the feelings and emotions, but the safety of allowing ourselves to feel that for each other. We told the rest of the team that was there that we had um, agreed to get married and now we had to get the blessing of my children who weren't anywhere near. <laughs> um, and, and the interesting thing about that was because I knew his mom and dad, when he called his mom, she said, oh yeah, that's the one I've been praying for. I have her picture in my purse. And then Christy, amazingly, she said, oh yeah, dad, you have my blessing because I went through the AIM directory and that's who I picked out for you. And again, she hadn't said anything, but she knew me from my days at Rafali Academy. So again, it was really affirming to to hear people say, yeah, you belong together. The, the cool thing was just how God had knit us together with the same goals in life, the same passion, the same love for him, and a desire to have a partner in ministry. Um, we would not say this is prescriptive, that this is how it should happen for other couples, but in our case, it was just right. And the more we got to know each other over the next week, the more things fell in place as far as similar ways of viewing life and philosophy and credit cards and you know everything else so um and here we are 18 years later still in love still enjoying still being best friends and um, so god's been good to allow us to marry as husband wife but to also marry our passions and our desire to make things happen in africa um, for his glory and in his kingdom They're great love that story They were married. I, I think he went there to interview her, kind of like a professional checkup, and in a span of six days went to interview her and he asked her to marry him in six days. And that's what I mean, the love came after that. But if you, if you go back and freeze frame, the, 1985, when Janice was murdered by these thugs along the road, and you stop and freeze frame Lanny's story there, and you quote Romans 8.28, you're going to be scratching your head thinking, where's the good in this? If you take Carla back when she was about 17, 18, her sister Rita is killed in an airplane crash. You freeze frame just that moment and you say, Where, where's the good in that? But the advantage of time of 20, 30 years later, 40 years later, you begin to see, as she described it, the knitting together, the working together, for good. And my encouragement for us is that we would wait upon the Lord like Ruth be faithful, like Joseph be gracious, like King Manasseh be prayerful and say, God, I'm waiting and looking and seeking for the good. 
because I love you, I'm called for you, so I'm waiting for the good from you. And that's our invitation to experience the fullness of all that God has for us. If that's your passion, we'd love to support you. We're going to worship now the bread and the cup. It symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. We take of that because we love Jesus and He died for us. It symbolically portrays our love for Him. The offering, another way to love Him. We give because I love God and He's given so much to me. We'd love to pray for you. We have prayer points over here. If you'd like someone to pray with you and encourage you so that as you wait for the good, you're faithful and gracious and prayerful and encouraged along the way. Let's worship together. Let me pray for us and honor the Father who loves us so much. Father, we thank you that you're going to do a work in each of our lives. We don't always see the good. Sometimes it takes the passage of years to see the good. But I pray, God, that you would find within us the faithfulness of a Ruth, the graciousness of a Joseph, the prayerfulness of a Manasseh that sought you out when the good was not evident. So I pray, God, that we would honor you as we worship you now. Glorify your name, that you are that good God that Lanny spoke of, that even in the tragedy, there's a goodness we see within you. So help us to honor you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.